I love camp. I was driving up here this morning. I drove down in the middle of the night because I'm Batman. And, oh, that's a team, neat. Uh, I'm, never mind. And I got up this morning feeling groggy, not as groggy as the bacon uh, nader guy or stabbed horse girl, but feeling groggy. And as I drove up to the guard tower thing, whatever that is when you enter Point Loma, uh, my heart was so excited to be with you guys. And I'm excited to see what God does in your lives. I know that this room is moist. And I'm positive if we just acknowledge that, we'll be okay. If you're having a hard time with it, I don't want you to be distracted. Just pretend that you're worshiping God inside of a mouth. And that's what it feels like, right? Just kind of that temperature and climate. Really yucky. Okay, so once the, uh, I, I'm confident that by the end of the day, the South American uh, funky storm will have subsided and we'll, we'll be fine. It'll only be 115 in here tomorrow. So I don't care if it was 300 degrees, warm enough to cook a turkey. I am so excited to be with you guys. So excited to see what God's going to do in our lives as we take this time away from our normal responsibilities, away from your family for a few days, away from, uh, thank the Lord, school on this summer break, and we just think about things that matter. And as Josh and I were talking about what we needed to talk about in here this week, uh, we both thought it was the right thing to start with a message uh, that is pretty sobering, a message that's a pretty heavy message, a message that's a reminder of something that we're not prone to think about very often. We both thought it would be good to start camp after Josh has opened it up and, and talked to us about this, this idea and concept of citizenship, of being from a different place, of belonging to somewhere else that's your true home. And we'll be talking all about that, but this morning we thought it would be most appropriate and most helpful to talk about the shortness of our lives. And that's a topic that's not easy for people who are at the front porch of life. You don't have, most likely, most of your life behind you. Some of you do, and you don't know that yet. But most of you have most of your life ahead of you. And as you get older, that reality will change. And most of your life will be behind you, and you've heard your parents say, as they look at your cute, chubby face, oh, I wish you could still be a baby. Or weren't you so cute when you were a baby? Implication being, what's the matter with me now? <laughs> and you've heard them remark, you know, you're growing up so fast. And you're like, get off me, mom. But I want to talk to you about this. I want to talk to you about the brevity of life. And there's a lot of places in Scripture that discuss this reality, that press upon us how important it is that we are mindful of what Patrick just prayed, that we are small and insignificant and temporal compared to God who is massive and significant and eternal. Our lives are very, very short. There's a place in the Bible I want you to turn. It's, it's in the book of Psalms. It's the 39th Psalm, Psalm 39. If you find Psalm 40, you've gone too far. I know you haven't been doing math this summer, so I thought I'd just help you. Psalm 39 is where we find a discussion of this concept of the brevity of our lives. Let me read it to you. Psalm 39, verse 1. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, 
a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. A man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. That's the word of the living God. And it's the message that he has for you today. And right at the center of that ancient song is that reminder. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. I clicked on a link on the Twitter the other day that said, why the oldest person in the world keeps on dying? <clears throat> I think I know the answer, but for some reason I clicked anyway. And it was an article written by a statistician, more math, and it discussed why the oldest people in the world, the people who hold the record in these modern days for being the oldest man or woman alive, why their reign as oldest doesn't last as long as it used to. Part of it is because there's so much competition for being the oldest person. Better statistics are kept. Uh, this is a group that turns over quite quickly. The article describes the oldest person in the world at the time, Gertrude Weaver, was making the best of her time in the limelight, the author says. When I called, he says, the 116-year-old... Raise your hand if you're 16. Okay, at 100, that's Gertrude. Arkansas resident two days into her reign on a Friday in early April. She was resting after a couple of television appearances and a half dozen phone interviews. With the help of her 73-year-old granddaughter, <laughs> just a baby, she offered up theories about her longevity, hard work, loving God, as her granddaughter put it, and she even invited President Obama to her next birthday party. Kathy Langley, the administrator at Silver Oaks Health and Rehabilitation Center, the Camden facility where Weaver was living, estimated that Weaver was getting 50 calls a day from media outlets wanting to speak to her. It's somewhat overwhelming, she said, and asked me to call back Monday. And when I did, I learned that Weaver had died that morning. 
The article goes on to describe different people who've held the title of the oldest person, and more and more people are clustering at that outer edge of human aging, and the tenure of the world's oldest person isn't as long as it used to be. But all the statistics in this article and the discussion of of this famous group of wise elderly folks just came back to a very simple reality that you're all aware of, I think. We're all going to die. The reason the oldest person in the world doesn't last very long is because they're the oldest person in the world. They're going to die. But friends, so are you. Some of you may die in your teenage years. Some of you will die tragically in your 20s. Some of you in your 30s. Some of you will die in your 40s and your 50s. Some of you may live to see your 60s and 70s. A few of you will live to see your 80s. Even less of you will live to see your 90s. And there may not be a person in this room who lives to be 100. Your life is passing you by. And you're not the oldest person in the world, but someday you'll be the oldest that you'll ever be. And it causes us to think not just about that goal that so many people have, especially in our society, of living as long as possible, of doing everything within our power to extend our life and to uh, pursue longevity and to hang on and grasp onto life with all our might and power to do everything to ensure both safety and health. So many people live in such a way that their most obvious priority is the preservation and extension of their earthly life. But however many years you have, you have to be starting to think, how am I going to spend it? If you live to be 70, someone reports that you'll spend 20 years of your life in total sleeping. 19 for those of you who came to camp this week. You'll spend 20 years of your life working, six years of your life eating, seven years cumulatively playing, five years getting dressed, one year on the telephone, three years waiting for someone. That feels like that sometimes, right? So next time you could say, I've been waiting for you for like three years. You add them all up, it's true. Five months tying your shoes, six months sitting at stoplights, eight months opening junk mail, one year looking for misplaced objects, two years unsuccessfully returning phone calls, five years waiting in line. Wow. How many minutes a day does this add up to be for an average life? I mean, it's just based on how many minutes a day a person sleeps, average 461. How many minutes a day a person is, is doing their makeup and, and taking care of their hair, 25 minutes a day. For me, zero minutes a day. I mean, think about how you spend your life. Psalm 39 is a message that that is put into God's book with the distinct purpose of causing you to stop being distracted by a thousand unimportant things and to take a moment and realize that you only have one life to live. This is it. And you will spend it on things that will fill that life up so quickly Just ordinary things like sleeping and eating and going to school. Those things will occupy so much of your life, just going from one day to the next. But this song comes from a man, a man named David. He was a king in Israel. He was the famous shepherd boy who was used by God to kill the great enemy of Israel, and then God raised him up to lead his people. He was a man who God loved and a man who loved God. David writes this poem, this song, in a point in his life where he's feeling the weight of difficulty. He's feeling the discipline of God. He's feeling that his life is hard. 
And he understands what so many people don't is that when life is hard, God is behind it. God is in it. God's involved in it. And Christians have always called that the discipline of God. It's what the Bible calls the difficulties that arise in your life, whether they be from your own bad decisions, from sinful choices that you've made, or whether they come from circumstances outside of you. Christians have always viewed the difficulties of life, the things that break your heart, the things that make you mad, the things that frustrate you in your life, the things that are difficult for you, they've always thought of those as the discipline of God in your life. That God is behind everything because he's sovereign over this universe. And when hard times come in your life, whether it be physical infirmities or relational issues or whatever kind of difficulty you may have encountered in your life, whether it's something that you have done or something that's been done to you, whether it's something inside of your family or outside of your family, those difficulties have always been seen by Christians as the discipline of God. And those who love God and know God see those things through the lens of God's discipline and are able to thank God for their trials, tribulations, and difficulties because they see God's hand in it. But it's not always easy, and it wasn't easy for David, David who knew God so well. David writes a song about the shortness of life, about the brevity of life, and he combines this song with the reality of the difficulty of life. David thinks in this song that life is both short and hard. Life is both difficult and brief. Life passes away so quickly. Those days turn to weeks, to months, to years, and then life is over. And so many of those years and of those decades are filled with hardship. This is the theme of David's song. And it's a song that flies counter to what the world tries to sell teenagers. We want you to think lightly. The world wants you to think superficially. The world wants you to think about pleasures, about advertising, about things that are fun, about the next great thing. But David wants you to pause, and God put this in his word on purpose. And this isn't the only place in Scripture he considers this issue. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is about this, the shortness and brevity and vanity of life and its parallel difficulty. And in this song, which is no Psalm 23, it's not a cute story about sheep. It's not a famous song. It's probably not one that you're really familiar with. We find such an important truth. It's enigmatic. It's strange. But it has a burning question in it. Why is man, why is mankind so fleeting and frail? And why is life so hard for us at times? Those are good questions, aren't they? And they're questions that come to us in the form of a song, a poem. God sometimes reveals himself in a story in the Bible, like David and Goliath. Sometimes he reveals himself to us in a letter, like the letter to the Ephesians. But often in the Bible, God reveals himself to us in a song, in a poem. Why is that? Well, songs and poetry, which are overlapping categories, have a way of having us feel truth, of experiencing it, of, of having it come through our mind and, and understanding, but to stick with us in a way because it was put in such a way that was beautiful, that was poetic, that was powerful. I was emotive. You understand this, those of you who are into English class, when you read, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Art thou more lovely and more temperate than this room? <laughs> rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. I wish there was some rough winds in here. <laughs> and a summer's lease hath all too short a date. That's Shakespeare. He's good at poems. I know you're not that into it. But you know what I mean? You know, say, say you wanted to convey the truth that, you know, what really makes a person beautiful is that they, they have no idea that they are beautiful. And so how would you say that? Maybe you'd say, baby, you light up my world like nobody else. The way that you flip your hair gets me overwhelmed. 
But when you smile at the ground, it ain't hard to tell. You don't know. Oh, oh, this is such insipid poetry. Get better taste. But it proves my point. When I look into your eye, eye, eyes, it, it proves my point that when things are put poetically, when things are put musically, it's a truth that's just as true, it's just as right, it's just as correct, but it's presented in a way that it's tended to affect your heart, to make you feel something. And this songwriter, David, is at the end of his rope. Verse 10 describes his severe suffering, whether it's physical or emotional or political pain as a king he was experiencing. We don't know. In David's life, it could have been any of those things, but this whole thing is, is marked and punctuated by prayer that's spoken to God and even spoken against God in brutal honesty because God can handle your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking. And so David speaks honestly with God. And the dominant theme as this psalm goes back and forth between talking about being mute, being quiet, being silent, and then speaking out to God. Back and forth it goes in four little parts, four parallel little verses to teach us the brevity of life, to teach us why life is hard and what we're supposed to do about it. And it ends without wrapping things up with a neat bow because sometimes life isn't like that. Instead, it ends with a lingering question and a reminder that we don't always get all the answers we seek, but God has shown us enough that we can live in a way that honors him in the brief life that we've been given, to live in a way that will engage this world with the gospel, to live in a way that will bring honor and glory to God, to live in a way where the impact of your life will not just be felt in the tiny circle you run in, but will have a global and even eternal impact when you live your short life even your hard life for God and for God alone. So let's look at this song in four brief parts. Verses one through three, we'll call it a silence that bothers. A silence that bothers. David opens by saying, I'll guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was dumb and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Do you hear those words of tongue, muzzle, guarding the mouth, dumb and silent, refrain within all words that speak of David's unwillingness to speak. His desire, because godless people were listening to him, because they were around him, he didn't want to say some things. He didn't want to talk about them. And so much so, he uses a poetic imagery of a muzzle. He doesn't actually put on a muzzle. He's not a Doberman. He's a poet and a king. But he speaks of a muzzle. That's how serious he is about being quiet. Sometimes we're inundated with noise and media and technology and your phone is constantly blowing up at you. It's, it's probably strange for us to think of purposeful silence, of thoughtfulness. And David restrains his speech because he has a problem. And his problem is with God. And he has this increased awareness of the brevity of life because of the difficult circumstances of his life, which he attributes to the discipline of his God. But he refuses to say all this out loud in a way that would cause unbelievers to think that he was disloyal to his God. And so he speaks to God. And in this, I think we find tremendous wisdom. Sometimes the only way to avoid sinning is to close your mouth. And sometimes the only way to solve that dilemma is to open that mouth to God and to God alone. If you've ever been plagued by a problem, some of you have experienced severe heartbrokenness in your life. Your family has fallen apart before your eyes. Things were done to you that should have never taken place and it scarred you, and it injured you, and it hurt you. 
Maybe you've, never, maybe you've never spoken about those things, but let me tell you, friend, you can speak to God. And David does that. He has this contrast of I want to be quiet in front of others because I love God. I don't want them to think I'm disloyal to God, but I'm going to speak, and when I speak, I'll speak to God. He uses all these pictures and the word breath in verses 5 and 11. It's the same word that drives through the book of Ecclesiastes, the book where his son Solomon wrote of the vanity, the uselessness of life with this word breath translated in vain. One author describes this theme as the fatal insufficiency of all that is earthbound. And I know you can handle that sentence. The fatal insufficiency of all that is earthbound. David had a profound awareness that there was nothing in this world that could satisfy his difficulties. There was nothing in this world that could solve his problems, take away his pain. He knew that the answer to his dilemma was not in this world, but in another world. And he recognized the fatal insufficiency of everything that was earthbound. Nothing on the planet would be good enough for David to solve his dilemmas. The only thing that would solve what was wrong with David was God in heaven. David was aware of this and he wrote often of this. He said in Psalm 42, my soul pants for thee, O God, like a deer pants for the water brooks. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. David realized the fatal insufficiency of all that is earthbound, and he didn't want to speak. This was a silence that bothered him, but a silence that drove him to prayer. And that's how this whole song opens up. I hope this week at camp, you find a few moments of solitude. I hope you find a few moments where you're on your bunk or you're standing out in God's creation looking at that amazing Pacific Ocean and you just lag back from your group for a moment. Don't get weird and wander off. We'll send the cops. <laughs> but just to take a minute and think about your life seriously to take a minute and not be surrounded by a dozen other voices and people pulling on you, to take a minute in your devotional time and to look up at the sky and to be mindful that it was God who spoke all this into existence, and it was God who created you in his image and likeness, and it's God who has a good and wise plan for your life. And it's God who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth a perfect, sinless human life so that he could crucify his son in your place for the punishment of the sins that you have done. It was that same God, as you stand in solitude, as you sit on a bench and look at the world that he made to reveal himself, as you hold in your lap the Bible that he gave us to show us who he is, that you remember that God killed his son for you, that Jesus went to the cross because of God's great love for sinners, and that on that third day after he died, God miraculously rose him from the grave, vindicating every claim Jesus ever made and proving that God could make dead sinners live through the life of his perfect son. Will you think about those things? Will you think about the brevity of your life? Because that's what these first three verses are all about. It's David processing the difficult dilemmas he's holding in his heart yet wanting to convey them to God, yet not wanting to say anything that's disloyal to God because he does deep down love God. He just doesn't understand what's going on with his life. Do you get that God can handle your doubt? He's big enough. God can handle whatever hard question it is you have for him. There is nothing that you've ever thought that God is like, oh, I can't, that's, uh, I'm not ready for that one. That's too weird. Oh, that's too perplexing of a question. God already knew it before you thought it. He certainly knew it before you spoke it. Open your heart and mouth to God. 
This silence that oppresses David will stop because he will change from this dilemma of, I gotta be quiet, I gotta be quiet, to speaking directly to God, verse four. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. The verses one through three is a silence that bothered him. Verses four through six are a life too brief for him. Verses four through six we'll call a life too brief for him. And finally, he opens his mouth in God to prayer, verse three. Lord, Yahweh, he addresses God by name. Make me to know my end. David was a man who, we don't know if he was running, being hounded by one of his enemies, or if he was seated on the roof of his palace overlooking Jerusalem. Wherever he was, whatever his circumstances were, whatever the nature of his difficulty, whatever period of life he was in, whether he was very young when he composed this song or very old when he composed this song, David lived a nice long life Whenever it was, it was David's prayer, and undoubtedly it was a song he would refer to on and on after its composition to remind himself, along with other songs that God's people celebrated, like Psalm 90, uh, the oldest psalm about the brevity of life. All these songs David would have sang throughout his life to remind himself to think about the end of his days. I'm pleading with you, young people, to think this morning about your death. I know that's heavy. I know we have superheroes and villains all up on us right now. But I need you to focus on reality. And whether you're a Christian or not, you can be certain that you will die. And there's nothing that you can do about it. When we think about the brevity of life, it can cause us to come to terms with all the things in our life that are superficial. I think Josh talked to you last night about some famous Christian young people, right? People who honored God with their lives, who were teenagers. And I think he mentioned to you Jonathan Edwards. We talked on the phone in the middle of the night. He re-preached his sermon to me on the phone. It was good. I liked it. Jonathan Edwards, wore a powdered wig, loved chocolate. He's a historical hero for me. He lived in a very different time, colonial America. He was a British dude. He came before the glorious revolution. And when he was a teenager, I think Josh told you, he wrote all these resolutions. I mean, powerful, potent deals where he really tried to think about how to use his life strategically. His ninth resolution, there was 70 of them, his ninth one was this, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. You know what we call that? Morbid. Super morbid, a little creepy maybe, Jonathan Edwards. Did you hear what he said? Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying. It was Jonathan Edwards' spiritual practice from age 17, his earliest res uh, resolutions were composed in his teenage years, and then he kept adding to them as he got a little bit older, and then he read them throughout the entirety of his life. His ninth resolution early on, when he was a teenager, was to think much on all occasions of, he says, my own dying. He's not thinking about death, generally. He's not thinking about cemeteries. He's not thinking about uh, the concept of eternity, the temporality of life. He's thinking about his own death. And that's what I'm asking you to do. And that's what Psalm 39 is about. I don't want you to think about death generally and paint your fingernails black and mope around here all week and be like, oh, <laughs> I want you to think about the day that you will die the day your heart stops beating. 
I want you to think about the day when you take your last breath. Think about it because it's gonna happen. It's a reality. You will not come to terms with the fatal insufficiency of all that is earthbound, that there is nothing in this world that can truly and lastingly satisfy your soul until you come to terms with the reality that there's more to this life than this life. You will not understand the complexities of your citizenship in heaven until you understand that your earthly life is bordered. It is grounded by these realities that it has a beginning and it has an end. Jonathan Edwards said to think on much occasions of his own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. The common circumstances which attend death? Let me ask you a question. What are the common circumstances that attend death? This is the part where you talk to me. What? That was good. Say it again. What'd you say? You're scared now. I scared you off. <laughs> Try again. Judgment, okay. What, what, let's think of just about the common circumstances that attend death. That's after death, right? There'll be judgment. What, what attends death? We're talking about the moment of death. What are the circumstances? What? Yeah, your family will cry, Right? I mean, that's a circumstance that attends death. Mourners are all around, and they're, they're aware that there's been a loss. What else happens when someone dies? Hmm? The body shuts down, the process of death. Someone has to plan a funeral. It's true. Have you been to a funeral? I mean, think about what that's like. Have you seen a casket lowered into the grave? And you're saying, Duncan, you're creeping me out. And do you know why this is creeping you out? Because you never think about these things. You know what you think about? Tomorrow. About something fun on Friday. About if your friend is cool with you right now or not. About if you're going to pass that class. About if you're going to get caught about when you're gonna get out from under your parents, about when you're gonna drive. You think about a thousand things, but you never think about that one pressing reality that is somewhere in front of you. It could be this year. A day is coming when you will die, and the circumstances that attend death, which is someone finds your body and someone puts you in the ground, are going to happen to you. What are you doing about it right now? Because the day, no, the minute that you die, you will stand before a holy God and you will answer to him for everything you have ever done, for every thought you have ever thought, for every word you have ever spoken, for every lustful action you have ever reached after, for every covetous and greedy thought, for every violation of God's perfect holy standard, you will answer to God, the same God who spoke this universe into existence, you will stand before him and you will be judged by God. Are you ready for that day? Have you thought about the circumstances that attend your death? Because David certainly did. He asked God, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? And let me know how transient I am. Are you aware of it? Verse 5 says, Thou hast made my days as handbreadths. That was a common unit of measurement back in the day, the handbreadth. We use the word foot. Like, it was like four feet long. Or, you know, I caught a fish that was 17 feet long, you would say. We use foot as like a common way of measuring things. It was the most ordinary way. That guy is like eight feet tall, bald and sweaty, the teenager said 
as she shrunk under her chair. Handbreadths. You know, they, they didn't have the metric system back then, and praise God, we're Americans, we don't either. So <laughs> they would measure things with a handbreadth. Was the span of your hand, you could measure fabric that way, you could measure rope that way, you could measure whatever it was, goods or commodities, there were things that could be measured by hand breadth. It could be a way to measure a, an animal in an agricultural society, you measured how many hand breadths it was. It was the smallest way of measuring things. You know, a common way of measuring things, but a tiny way of measuring things. Probably we would say inches or centimeters. It was a small unit of measurement. I looked up on the internet, what's the smallest unit of measurement that we use? It's something called the Planck length. Planck, a lot of consonants in a row there. Which is 1.6 times 10 to the minus 35th meters across. It's the equivalent to around a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a centimeter. And then it went on to say, <laughs> crazy Wikipedia, one of you probably wrote this, this is a scale at which the quantum foam is believed to exist. The laws of quantum physics cause minute wormholes to open and close constantly, giving space to a rapidly changing foam-like structure. If we're ever to able to exploit the tremendous energy of the quantum foam, then the power contained within one cubic centimeter of empty space would be enough to boil the Earth's oceans. And I said, science, you're so funny. <laughs> and I turned it off. tiny unit of measurement, a handbreadth, an inch, a centimeter. That's what life is like when compared to eternity. If I were to have put a rope, a big spool of rope in the back of my pickup truck when I drove down here last night and tied it to a tree in my yard, I would be doing something dangerous. Not half as dangerous as that surfing thing you guys did. And if I drove down here and rope just kept on going and kept on going, and if I had this limitless supply of rope that went from my house in scenic Sunland, California, all the way down to Point Loma right here, that would be a really long rope, 127 miles, something like that. And... If I were to make, with my fancy fountain pen, a mark on that rope somewhere along the line, just a little mark on that rope, it'd take you a while to find it. Compare that mark on that long but measurable rope to the span of your life. And the rope represents the span of God's life. Except his rope doesn't start at my house and end here. His goes forever, in eternity, in both directions. God, who never had a beginning and never had an end, is so different from you. Your earthly life is just a speck in eternity. Are you aware of that reality? Because being aware of that brevity, of that shortness, is what David's all about. He says it's just a, a hand breadth. There's a vanity, an evanescence to life. And he says in verse 5, even the pursuit of wealth is without value in the end. You know, a lot of people live for money. You guys maybe don't yet, but someday you will. You all broke. High schoolers, bunch of broke high schoolers. Someday you won't be broke. You'll pile up money and you'll put it in to different kind of investments and you'll get really good at working with money and you'll figure out how money works and make it work for you and some of you will start to worship your money and you'll live for your money because lots and lots of people do. But David wants to remind you and he understood wealth as the king of Israel that no matter how much you pile up, you're still going to die. And you don't know what's going to happen to it. Wills are broken. Trusts are violated. Inheritors die. 
They betray one another. You don't know what's gonna happen. You won't be there for that part, no matter how much wealth you pursue according to verse six. You amass riches and you don't know who's gonna gather them. It's sad, but it's reality. I think of two men. One, George Gordon Byron. You read him in British Lit class in high school called Lord Byron. He wrote a poem that I memorized when I had teen angst, like my junior year in high school. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. And I thought, teen angst. I later read about his life. I just thought it was cool. I thought, you know, a girl would be impressed. I was really wrong about that. (laughs) This British romantic poet who wrote so beautifully was popular. He was handsome. He was successful. He lived a life of excess. He had many famous torrid affairs. He compiled huge debts. He eventually went on self-imposed exile. His life was wretched and he knew it. He wandered around his native Europe in the Middle East, getting involved in Italian revolutionary politics. He went to a war with the Greeks in their war of independence from the Turks and died of an STD most likely at age 36. And three months before he died, he described his life in this poetic line. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, that canker, and the grief are mine alone. He had a contemporary who was born almost the same time he was. They overlapped, but they never knew each other. One was from Scotland, one was from England. But this Scottish young man was not famous. He was not titled. He was not wealthy. Instead, he pastored a little church in Dundee, Scotland. And he also died. He didn't even make it to age 30. But the last entry of his student days at college was this one. March 29th, 1835. College finished on Friday last. My last appearance there. Life is vanishing fast. Make haste for eternity. His name was Robert Murray McShane. And he wasn't famous in his life, but his friends were so taken by his awareness of the shortness of his life. And he had no idea he would die young, though he did. And when he died, they took his sermons and his letters and they compiled him. And his life has been a testimony to Christian for, for, to Christians for generations after generations. He had little sayings that were preserved even today. He said, live near to God and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. He lived with an awareness of his death, the kind of awareness that David is pleading with you to have, an awareness that takes the words, the threats, the promises of Jesus seriously. When he warns people who think, I'm gonna store up all my stuff and eat and drink and be merry, Luke 12. But God says to that man, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you've prepared? It was men like David and men like Jonathan Edwards and men like McShane who understood the words of of James, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This is what life is like when you think about eternity, when you think about your own death. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so David starts to get it. And in verses 7 through 11, we see a silence that's believing. A silence that's believing. Look at his cry to God. Now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. His only hope is in God. 
Verse eight, he asks for salvation, for rescue from his own sin. And it's not just the penalty, the difficulties. He wants out from under, verse 10, remove thy plague from me because of the the opposition of your hand. I am perishing. It's not just he wants relief from the penalties of his difficulties, from the discipline of God. He understands that he needs forgiveness, that God doesn't take sin lightly. And so now he has a different kind of silence, not a troubled silence that he started with, but a trusting silence, not a silence that bothers him, but a silence that provokes him to turn to God in prayer. And this prayer just keeps intensifying. His silence is a silence that's believing. And then this fourth and final section, look at verse 12 with me. We see a life that's boundless. A life that is boundless. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I'm a stranger with thee, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn thy gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. I want to draw your attention. It's a simple message. He says, don't look at me, God. Please stop punishing me. It's an interesting way to end a song where the verse before he was just expressing his hope and trust in God. but it doesn't always end in perfect neatness. We're sinful people. And sometimes our prayers are imperfect like this one. But the the words I wanna draw your attention to as we wrap this up is, look at verse 12. David says, I'm a stranger with thee, a sojourner like all my fathers. This is the concept that the New Testament will call citizenship. This is the concept in the Old Testament that's taken over to the New Testament and borrowed and used to describe and exemplify what your life is really like. If you are a Christian, you're a citizen of the next world. You're a citizen of God's city. More on that tonight. If you are a human, you must be aware that you are a sojourner a stranger, an alien. He uses two words there, both words that we would use the word immigrant. Someone who comes to a country and works in that country but doesn't have that country as his home. A visitor there. Someone with a passport is the idea. Someone who is not from this land, but in this land. And David looks at his life and he sees that he doesn't really belong here. He sees that he's only passing through like a visitor would be. And he sees the difficulties of his life and he sees the shortness of his life. And the theme he wants to bring out is he's a passing stranger. In his society, in Israel, uh, sojourners or aliens or strangers had rights in society that were safeguarded by God and his law. They were supposed to be treated with respect, but there were limitations. They couldn't own land because it wasn't their country. He uses that concept of a stranger, a sojourner, a guest to amplify the nature of our life. We're only here for a little while. I mean, think about it in terms of even vacation. Think about it in terms of summer camp. I mean, summer camp is fun for five days. It would be a prison if it was 50 days. It would be a really horrible prison if it was 50 years. Everything comes to an end, and when you put boundaries on it, and when you realize everything ends, camp ends, life ends, vacation ends, you start to think about yourself not as one with rights, not as one who belongs, but as one who doesn't belong here. I think we've seen progress in this song. We don't find perfection in this song, but we see progress. David recognizes that he's a stranger and an alien, and he knows that there's more to come in this life than this life. 
And part of the bewilderment, the bewilderment of a song like this, a poem like this, is that David had only a faint shadow of how God would fulfill his promises to him. David didn't know the beauty and the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. David didn't know what all those atonements, all those sacrifices were actually prefiguring. David knew that he had faith in God, that he trusted God, that he sought to obey God and follow God, that his life belonged to God, but in that reality, he had no idea just what an awesome promise the gospel would be, because now we see life and immortality with even more fullness. What was just a reflection to David becomes a reality for us in the coming of Christ. David realized he wasn't really at home. He was only a guest on this earth. I read a story about Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore. His friends call him Teddy. And this was only 100 years ago this happened, 1910, approximately 100 years ago. Roosevelt went on a hunting trip across Africa. It was after he had served his first term as president, and I think it was 1909 he went on this hunting trip and he was hunting on behalf of the Smithsonian. He killed a 1,000 animals and traveled across 2,600 miles of Africa. Times were different then. Vegans weren't invented yet. And he killed dozens of lions. He killed rhinos. He killed hippopotamuses, water buffaloes, every kind of animal. He killed and collected them. And the newspapers, he was a wildly popular president, they wanted him to run for re-election, but he didn't. And so they were reporting about him and they were following his journey and the newspapers were putting pictures of his hunts in the paper. And finally, after I think a, a year-long journey of this hunt, he came home on a steamship. And some of the largest crowds that have ever gathered in America gathered to welcome this former president home from his African safari adventures of uh, collecting specimens for the museum. Massive throngs of people were cheering and waving and bands were playing as he uh, offboarded from this ship. Well, unbeknownst to him, there was a missionary couple that was on that same ship from Africa coming home after decades of service to the Lord. And they saw the spectacle as they disembarked of these crowds cheering their adoring president. And they heard the band playing. And this couple coming home had no receiving party. There was not one person there to meet them. And as they started their way and their journey back to their home, the husband was discouraged. And he groaned sadly to his wife and said, look, I, I don't want a parade, but at least someone could have come to welcome us home. And his wife wisely looked at him and tenderly said, sweetheart, we're not home yet. Is this world your home? Are you perfectly comfortable here? You walk on this earth, you have mortal flesh, you struggle with sin, then this song, Psalm 39, is your song. And the question is, is do you belong here? Is this your home? Or are you just passing through? Because life is brief. Life is hard. Judgment is real. The future is certain. You will die and stand before God. Are earthly things insufficient for you? Or is God enough? Where is your home? And what is your citizenship? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I, I pray for these young people. And I ask that you would help them to number their days, to take into account the seriousness, 
the sobriety of life, to think about what really matters in this world, and to find those things in their hearts that they truly value, the things that they truly love. And may they find if those things are eternal things or passing things. God, help them to see that only those things done for Christ and unto Christ will last for all eternity. Help them to see that this world is not their home, that they're made in your image and likeness, that they belong to you, that you have purpose and meaning for their lives that they can find only in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you love these young men and young women and that you did everything, everything necessary to purchase men and women for God from every tribe and tongue and nation that you exchange the just for the unjust to bring us to yourself. May the reality of the gospel sink in as they take seriously their life, eternity, judgment, heaven, hell, the reality of what you're calling us to, God. Use these days at camp to affect souls for eternity. May young men and young women come to know you a Savior and Lord, to follow you through all their brief days on this earth and then to meet you and be greeted in heaven by their Savior, by their Lord, by their God, by King Jesus. In his name.